0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a psychiatrist discusses the use of antidepressants and how to safely stop taking them.
1: I think we're careful with everybody. We warn them they might get worse, the, the antidepressant might backfire. And if that happens, we need to stop the antidepressant, obviously, and, and make sure they're safe. A
0: cardiologist historian tells how two scientists in the 1930s, thousands of miles apart, figured out the role of our kidneys in blood pressure management.
2: They were working in the same field of interest. I think they were unaware of each other's work until a lot later when both of them published their results at almost exactly the same time.
0: And a registered dietitian nutritionist helps us compare low-fat eating with low-carb eating.
3: So It was interesting that they didn't find anything to say, oh, if we put you on a low-fat diet, you're gonna lose more weight than the person on the low-carb diet or vice versa.
0: All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear about the birth of angiotensin from a cardiologist historian. Then, we'll compare low fat versus low carb diets. But first, a psychiatrist talks about the use of antidepressants and how to safely stop taking them. The New York Times analyzed federal data that shows long-term use of antidepressants is surging in the United States, with 15.5 million Americans taking the medications for at least five years. That's a number that's doubled since 2010 and tripled since the year 2000. Here to talk about these popular medications and what happens when someone stops taking them is Dr. Thomas Schwartz, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences, who is also the interim chair of that department at Upstate. Welcome, Dr. Schwartz.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I I want to focus on antidepressant withdrawal, but can we first talk about the popularity of antidepressants? Um, Which drugs are we talking
1: about? So I think the, the antidepressants as a class, the most common are what we call the SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, so Paxil, Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro would be the probably the most common. Um, There are other antidepressants that we do use, uh, Welbutrin, Remeron, uh, Trintelix, Vibrid. But there's probably eight or nine that are are the most commonly used. And we've been using these. When did we start using these? So I I think looking back in psychiatry, the original antidepressants came out in the 1950s and 1960s. They had many, many side effects. They were hard to take. Uh, Frankly, they could be dangerous if taken uh, incorrectly. And when Prozac came out in the 80s, it was really the first safer, easier to use antidepressant. So I think since the 80s, we really have been able to prescribe more and more because they're, they're safer, they're more user-friendly for the patient and the physician. Uh, primary care doctors r- rarely prescribed antidepressants and you know before the 80s, and now they're probably the number one prescriber. Uh, I think about 70% of the antidepressants in the US come out of primary care offices, not necessarily psychiatric ones.
0: Well, you said they're SSRI, serotonin.
1: Mm-hmm. What, is, what does that do? How do they work in the body? So what, what they do is they block a reuptake or a recycling pump. Your, your brain likes to vacuum up serotonin. Uh, if we block those pumps, then more serotonin is essentially left floating around. And theoretically, that corrects some of the underlying um, brain problems that, that led to the depression. That That's the theory, at least.
0: And do they seem to be effective? I think
1: so. Uh, the, the data is compelling. If you look, can an antidepressant beat a placebo or a sugar pill? Um, that's how you get FDA approved in the United States. So on the short term, they do seem to work. And really, when you look at longer term data, you know, particularly from the Scandinavian countries um, who do more long term naturalistic studies, uh, they are protective. They do help depression, they help anxiety, they help eating disorders. Uh, so they're, they're not just antidepressants, but, but they do seem to be helpful if, if used in, in the right patient.
0: Um, d- does it incu- include pediatrics? Is it adults and children?
1: Yeah, I think more and more we're seeing FDA approvals uh, for children with depression. Um, you know, Prozac, for example, Lexapro are approved in both kids and adults. So the increase in, in prescribing is in both areas, uh, pediatrics and in adult patients.
0: So are antidepressants, are they meant um, to be used in crisis to help someone through sort of a a period of time, or are they intended to be used long-term?
1: So it's all relative, and there's there's never a a simple, easy answer. If somebody is going through a stressful situation, uh, a divorce, uh, a car crash, a house burning down, a a pet passing away, a family member dying – These are normal but crummy parts of life. In in our language, we call these adjustment disorders. We used to call them grief reactions a while ago. But these are tough things to navigate, and most people can get through them. Um, Some people need psychotherapy. That's the treatment of choice for dealing with a stressful thing where you're really stuck. But there is a subset of that group where that stressful, terrible situation does kick off a major depressive episode or a clinical depression. So if somebody really uh, starts meeting uh, diagnostic criteria and it it turns from being a normal stressful event to being stuck in a clinical major depressive disorder, Um, when that happens to somebody, you can, again, go through more formal psychotherapy and 12 to 20 weeks of cognitive behavioral therapy is an example, and and that works 70, 80% of the time. Uh, Or somebody can take a medication such as one of these SSRIs. Or they can do both. And it really comes down to patient preference. Some people are scared of medications. Uh, some patients don't have an hour a week to talk to somebody or are scared to talk to somebody. And you really let the patient decide at that point.
0: Or their insurance might not be as forthcoming right. with that. Right. Well, someone conceivably could start taking an antidepressant during a crisis situation mm-hmm. and yeah. it's, they, it's helping. Mm-hmm. And why, why upset something that's working, right?
1: Right. I think whatever treatment course the, the patient chooses, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh, and, and so ideally, you if you can fix the depression, regardless of the treatment modality, if somebody can get to what we call remission, we, we kind of use the cancer term. Remission means no cancer cells left. Uh, in our world, remission from depression means you have no symptoms left. You're back to your normal. You're well again. I think once that can be achieved, usually after several weeks of a psychotherapy or an antidepressant. You probably want to wait uh, about a year. If somebody can stay symptom-free for a year, you hope they've beaten the depression, you hope the brain has learned not to get re-depressed, and you can take the medicine away or or the psychotherapy away. And and that's if it's their first depression. If they have three or four major depressive spells, you might want to do something longer, like a decade. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the more the brain gets depressed again and again, the more it's going to do it in the future.
0: Now, weren't there some warnings soon after um, these drugs became common use um, that there were some dangers that uh, the antidepressant could actually make things worse?
1: Yeah, I I think historically, in psychiatry at least, we've actually known regardless of if you're using an antidepressant of any kind, a psychotherapy of any kind, one of the most dangerous times in in a depressed person's treatment is when they start getting better. So initially, we, we felt we were using antidepressants, people were getting better, and, and when you're tired, sluggish, amotivated, it's kind of hard to contemplate acting on a suicidal plan. But when you're 10 20% better, you have more energy, you can put together the wherewithal to go to the store to, to buy whatever you need to harm yourself. Um, that's one of the most dangerous times. It's scary. People are actually getting better you know, the doctor's happy, the patient's a little bit happy, but it also gives them the ability to complete a suicide. And that's regardless of treatment. So that's a, actually a very dangerous time. And we, we thought when the antidepressants were started that maybe it was just coinciding with that. When you went and look back at the data, however, particularly in people under the age of 25, there was a statistical group that got more suicidal thinking. You know, we're, we're talking like a percentage point, not 80%. But let's say one out of 100 just to, to you know, come up with a number actually do get worse. And, and we do need to be careful in that age group. So again, I think we're careful with everybody. We warn them they might get worse, the, the antidepressant might backfire. And if that happens, we need to stop the antidepressant obviously and, and make sure they're safe. So they, they can backfire. Uh, I make it um, similar to if you start an antibiotic for a sinus infection, your, your doctor always tells you, you know, in a few days you should feel better, but you might get a rash, you might get uh, stomach problems. Um, sometimes those rashes kill people. You have an anaphylactic reaction and stop breathing. There is a harm in every medicine we take. Sure. So the antidepressants are similar. You do need to be careful, uh, but they do help people too.
0: Well, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with psychiatrist and professor Dr. Thomas Schwartz, uh, the interim chair of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Upstate. And we're talking about antidepressant use and what happens when someone t- stops taking their medicine. Um, Recently, the New York Times wrote about how some people who take antidepressants are unable to quit because of
1: severe withdrawal symptoms. Do you see that in your practice? So we do. The antidepressants, particularly the longer you've been taking them, so we're we're talking months to years now. Uh, It's usually not after a few weeks, but if you're on an antidepressant months to years and particularly at a higher dose, uh, if you quit those cold turkey, uh, people can go into withdrawal. It's not every antidepressants, it's the antidepressants that we call them short half-life, meaning when you take a tablet, it, your body you know, gets rid of the drug within your system within hours, that's it's a faster drug to us. And we know that drugs that are metabolized faster have more withdrawal. Uh, Alcohol's a fast-acting drug too. So the difficulty is your brain gets used to having a lot of serotonin around, which is what helps to treat your depression. And then all of a sudden, if you quit the antidepressant cold turkey, there's no serotonin. So let's say you go from 100% serotonin to 30%. Your brain reacts by creating withdrawal syndrome. And that can be things as mild as headaches and stomach aches. Sometimes people get more weepy and more sad. But sometimes they they really get these flu-like symptoms, muscle aches, uh, joint aches. Uh, They can feel uh, hot or almost feverish. They can get... um, their muscles can get tremors or, or get uh, kind of these jerky movements. And and some people say they get things called brain zaps. They feel like electricity, it doesn't spark them or hurt, but they feel like they have these zips of electricity, which to me is, I've never seen that anywhere else in medicine. And so if I hear that, I, I kind of wonder if they stop their medicine all of a sudden.
0: Is there a safe way to come off antidepressants to to prevent all of that from happening?
1: I think so. Uh, I certainly have had patients uh, tell me that they've never been able to get off these drugs and they're stuck in a withdrawal state. Um, in my practice, I've actually never seen that. In my practice, I've been able to get pretty much everybody off of these safely. But there certainly could be people that um, get stuck in these withdrawal states so what we would do is we take your antidepressant and we might actually lower it over you know, a few months, three months, six months. Instead of two to three weeks, we just spread out and we go lower and lower and lower. And maybe instead of dropping by 20 milligrams, we drop your dose by five. We just spread out and take a longer time. That gives your brain a chance to adapt to being without as much serotonin. I think that's effective 70, 80 percent of the time. Something else we'll do, we'll use the drug Prozac, and that's a long half-life drug. Every tablet you take is in your body for a week or two. Hmm. So the longer a drug lasts, the less withdrawal you have, and that's true of almost any kind of drug. So sometimes we'll take people off of a short-acting drug like Paxil or Effexor, for example, and we'll temporarily put them on Prozac to detox them. It's really like a methadone detox for people that are used to heroin. You go from a short-acting to a long-acting drug, and then you still go slowly off. So Prozac is our our detoxification drug, and and that uniformly works in my practice. And and then people can get off the medication with, with much less issue.
0: So it seems to me like um, what you're saying is that patients really shouldn't just stop taking their medicine without sort of some guidance from their physician.
1: Correct. I think that's true of any kind of doctor, you know, psychiatry, uh, family medicine, orthopedic surgery. Uh, Always talk to your doctor or your nurse practitioner or physician's assistant, but always ask for advice before you quit anything cold turkey. And in psychiatry, you, you certainly could get a withdrawal, but what we've learned is the brain doesn't like to do anything fast. So do, would we retrigger a new depression if you went cold turkey? I think so. So I'd rather take at least a few weeks or even a few months to get you off your medications. We we just we don't want to play a trick on the brain, um, and change the chemistry too quickly, whether you go on the medicine or off the medicine.
0: Well, before uh, before we have to wrap up, I want to ask you about sort of the future of antidepressants. Um, is there anything on the horizon that's going to be different with the way they're given or?
1: I think researchers continue to look for new ways to treat depression. There are new medicines that are like the SSRIs that seem to have a bit less side effect. So there are drugs called serotonin partial agonist reuptake inhibitors, uh, SPARI for short, S-P-A-R-I. They seem to have a little less sexual problems and a little less weight gain. So if you think about the Paxils and the Prozacs and the Zolofts, those are some of the number one complaints so these drugs are four to five years old, so they're, they're not new, but they, they're kind of like the SSRIs with a bit less side effect in practice. So I, I think that's been helpful. I think we continue to look at new psychotherapies and different psychotherapies. You know, if you don't want to be on a medicine, what are your choices? So there's refinements in that area as well. We have transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's a high-powered magnet that has been FDA-approved for some time, but the insurers have allowed more access to it. So we're getting more and more data in clinical practice using a high-powered magnet to essentially treat depression with a minimum of side effects. And then the hottest thing in the news seems to be ketamine and some derivatives of ketamine. The idea is if you're completely depressed and even suicidal, if you went to an emergency room, for example, they could put an IV in and give you a dose of ketamine. Ketamine's been around forever. Uh, it's a controlled substance. Uh, some people can get addicted to it. Uh, it's uh, anesthetic. You know, People feel less pain on it. It might be related to you know PCP or angel dust if you want to think scary for a minute. But at very tiny doses, uh, you can give an IV and people walk out of the emergency room not depressed and not suicidal. And it's not because they're high. The doses are are low that you don't get a a buzzed or a high effect. It's fascinating. And the the ketamine dampens glutamate, which is a neurochemical, a brain chemical. We've been trying to manipulate for years, but we haven't found the right product. So an old drug is getting repurposed as kind of a quick fix to the most dire uh, consequences of being depressed. The negative is it only lasts about seven days.
0: That was my question. How long till it, right. So
1: like shock treatment, where you sometimes need to go once a week for what we would call maintenance sessions, you might have to do maintenance ketamine. So once a week, you have to go for an IV. There are now active studies using a nasal spray uh, of ketamine derivatives. And and that way you wouldn't need an IV. You wouldn't have to go to the hospital. And and those studies are looking promising, but they're they're early. Uh, So it'll be interesting. Will we have a, a treatment that works quickly and just an easier way to maintain people on it, but again, you have to watch for addiction and side effects. So uh, we'll know in the future if that's the uh, becomes FDA approved and and more routinely wow. used. Well, very interesting. Thank you so much
0: for sharing. Yeah. My guest has been Dr. Thomas Schwartz, a professor of psychiatry and the interim chair of the Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences Department at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show Health Link on air. Next, on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, how scientists in the United States and Argentina simultaneously discovered an important compound known as angiotensin. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. In an informal poll of the entire House staff of the Department of Medicine, not a single physician recognized the name Irvine Page or Eduardo Braun Menendez. Today, we're going to hear about the medical contributions of these two physician scientists from Dr. Harold Smolian. He's a cardiologist and historian at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Smolian. Thank you. Now, you decided to delve into the history of the discovery of angiotensin after realizing that new doctors today were not familiar with the names of the men who discovered this compound, right? That's correct. So tell me about how you uh, did your research, because you this led to a paper that was published um, in the American Journal of Medical Sciences, but how did you begin your research?
2: Well, we got interested in this because... Um... These developments and the importance of this substance, angiotensin, and the drugs that are derived from it, uh, are of great importance. And they all developed during my early career. And so the names of the people who discovered these substances were well known to me. Um, And and I was a great admirer, of course, of the people who discovered it. But the physicians today who write millions of prescriptions uh, that are involved with these substances have no idea where they came from. That always seemed to be to me to be a shame, and that they uh, they should remember the people who discovered them as well as I did.
0: So, our listeners who aren't medical doctors um, mm-hmm. or nurses might not know what angiotensin is. What what is it?
2: Well, it turns out that this is a very important substance that uh, is normally present in the body. It helps control the circulation. It regulates the circulation. Keeps the blood pressure under normal uh, levels under a variety of circumstances and. It Controls the blood volume. So it's an extremely important uh, discovery, and, and its manipulations about it that resulted in a lot of drugs to be formed to regulate it, move it up and down, uh, have become very important and, and are very commonly used in medicine today.
0: So ACE inhibitors, people might have heard of that, right? That's what uh... that's right.
2: Uh, an ACE inhibitor blocks some of the effects of angiotensin. And in that way, it can lower the blood pressure in the millions of people who have high blood pressure.
0: And so there might be people, what, what are some of the names of ACE inhibitors that people might recognize that they're taking these medicines?
2: Well, the, the drug companies give them um, names that are easy to remember, but the generic terms all end in the letters IL. And so one of the first drugs that was developed that's an ACE inhibitor is Captopril. And then there are a number of others, Lisinopril and and, okay.
0: so and people take them for management of blood pressure or heart failure? Heart um, failure,
2: heart attacks, uh, some forms so, of kidney disease. So they're very important drugs and used extensively.
0: So when you got uh, interested in looking into this <clears throat> discovery, do, do you work in a library? Do you work on a computer? How do you start looking into this?
2: Well, I'm not a professional historian. I'm, I'm uh, an amateur Uh, And so I don't do uh, primary sources where you'd have to go to the actual documents themselves uh, in in rare places to find them. Um, I go and investigate others who have looked into these things on primary sources. And I use their information and collect that and make a story out of it.
0: Okay. So tell us about the, Irvine Page and Eduardo Braun Menendez um, were both scientists in different countries. Irvine Page was American and Eduardo Braun Menendez was Argentinian?
2: He, he was originally Chilean, but he worked most of his life in Argentina.
0: All right. So, and, and we're talking about the 1930s? It was time indeed, period. yes.
2: So, uh, Page um, discovered this substance uh, while working in the Eli Lilly research laboratories in Indianapolis. Uh, And at almost exactly the same time, Braun Menendez um, made a similar discovery, but using different techniques, uh, discovered the same substance while working in Buenos Aires in in Argentina.
0: So they just happened to be sort of working in the same field of interest.
2: They were working in the same field of interest. I think they were unaware of each other's work until a lot later when both of them published their results at almost exactly the same time. Wow, interesting. It's a very coincidence of, uh, of, of two important uh, people who made the same discovery using two different methods at the same time.
0: So did, how, did they, they, how did they learn about each other? Was it after they published papers?
2: Or? Yes, uh, the, uh, uh, Irvine Page published, of course, in the American literature, uh, several papers, and Braun Menendez in the, uh, in the Latin American literature, and having read one another's work, and uh, as gradually the substance became recognized as a very important uh, substance, and they 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 uh, realized that each of them had discovered the same thing.
0: Now, and we're talking about the 1930s, long before uh, the internet was available. So, was it um, coincidence that they stumbled over one another's work? Um, how did how did doctors? learn of what was happening in the world during those times.
2: I think it must have been uh, entirely just through reading the literature and one another's papers and having their colleagues uh, do the same and report to them and so on. I I don't know of any actual uh, information about how they learned of each other's discovery, but it was relatively easy to do by following the literature.
0: So they were looking into the role of the kidney in blood pressure regulation. That's right. What made us think, or them think, that the kidney played any role in blood pressure regulation? Well, that had
2: been known, actually, for many years, some 40 years before uh, a substance had been discovered that was uh, present in the the kidney, especially if it was short on blood supply, that would raise the blood pressure in other animals. So the kidney was known for many, many years to be involved in some way in, in blood pressure regulation.
0: So they were trying to figure out what it was.
2: They were trying to find the, the substance that, that the kidney produced that, that would raise the blood pressure in other in other animals.
0: You're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Harold Smolian. He's a cardiologist and amateur historian here at Upstate, and he's published a paper on the birth of angiotensin. Um, it's called An International Compromise, and it was in the American Journal of the Medical Sciences. Now, your title says, An International Compromise, and that relates to the name itself, right?
2: That's right. The, uh, the interesting part of the story is that Page, <clears throat> realizing that he had discovered a new substance, had to give it a name, and he called it angiotonin.
0: Angiotonin, Angiotonin.
2: Okay. Uh, on the other hand, Braun Menendez in Argentina also realized he had discovered an important substance and had to name it Unaware that Page had already, or at the same time, named his substance, Uh, Braun Menendez called it hypertensin. And uh, for a long time, as the literature developed, some people who wrote about this substance would call it one thing, and some people would call it the other. So there was a certain amount of confusion in the years that followed uh, about what to call this substance as it gradually became more and more important.
0: And in the different languages, too, Right.
2: Uh, well, much of the uh, yes, of course, the uh, uh, some of the literature from Argentina was written in Spanish, and incidentally, my co-author on this paper is Dr. Dan Villarreal, and also in the cardiology division here at Upstate, uh, is fluent in Spanish, and he reviewed the Spanish literature for uh, for our work on this paper.
0: It's still pretty amazing how they overlapped and how they came to learn of one another.
2: Well, uh, they. After the, uh, after the argument was settled, uh, they both agreed that, uh, uh, that it was a good thing to have it settled, but one gets the sense from reading the literature that there was a fair amount of competition uh, about this between 1940 and in the 17 years that followed uh, when one group called it one thing and the other group called it the other.
0: Do you think the two men themselves were uh, protective of their, the names?
2: I think they were at the time. Having buried the hatchet in 1957, and and uh, they decided that they would use the the portion of the word angio from Page in America, and and tensin from uh, the portion of the word from Argentina. They they made a a hybrid word and called it angiotensin. And at that point, each of them gave up uh, their their uh, claims at priority, and it was a it was an amicable. Solution to the to the problem.
0: Now, how did they end up burying the hatchet? Did they see each other at a scientific conference, or did they?
2: They did. There was a uh, there was a conference held in Ann Arbor, Michigan, at the University of Michigan, in 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 uh, in celebration of the recognition of the kidney as a as a as a uh, source of hypertension in in experimental hypertension, and the two of them were there at this meeting. and the story is that they settled this, uh, this dispute about what to call the substance over two martinis, which seems about <laughs> as good a way to settle a dispute as any. It worked. Yes.
0: Now, let me ask you, did either of them go on to work on developing the ACE inhibitors or medications that would work on angiotensin?
2: Well, Page surely did. He left uh, Indianapolis after having discovered angiotensin and moved on to the Cleveland Clinic, where he was their director of research and stayed there for the rest of his career. And most of his uh, work is associated with his uh, time at the Cleveland Clinic. Okay. Uh, and he was very much involved with follow-up of uh, angiotensin, having uh, helped describe uh, its chemical makeup and uh, and uh, being very active in, in the um, development of uh, drugs to modify its effect. On the other hand... Uh, uh, Braun Menendez got involved with the government takeover uh, of, of a, a military sort of dictatorship, and he left the university for a number of years uh, when university academic freedom was impaired. So he, he left rather, his,
0: than, rather than stay? and
2: Rather than stay. And he and his uh, colleagues started a, a small non-governmental, their own research institute in a private house, with limited funds. And it's very interesting how they uh, managed to do their research in the outside of the university in this home. The, um, the um, dining room became the library and all of the bedrooms individual laboratories and the, uh, the animal quarters were in the garage. And um, They managed to uh, continue their research until uh, the university was freed of bureaucratic inter- interference. Uh, a number of years later. And then at that point, he was made chief of the uh, division of uh, research in this area at the university again, where he moved back.
0: The, were they in a house because they had to keep it secret or because that's no, all they it had? Was, uh,
2: because all they could afford. That's
0: all, okay. Wow. The uh,
2: the, the unfortunate part of uh, Bron Menendez was he was becoming more and more famous for his work and his uh, group's efforts in research. Um, and then and the... Uh, Event of his 56th birthday, his family arranged for a party to be held at a uh, seaside resort uh, in in Argentina. And he flew there to be with the family, and the plane never made the landing and went into the ocean. And he died along with the rest of the passengers as a result of that plane crash.
0: On his birthday.
2: On his birthday. So he died Mm -hmm. at exactly 56 years of age. On the other hand, Page lived a very long life dying at the age of 90, uh, and being active almost to the very end. Uh,
0: what age range were they when they discovered angiotensin? Were they I'm in their 20, sure 20s, 20s
2: or 30s? I, I would guess yeah. they were in their 30s.
0: Okay, so much younger. Well, today, um, fast-forwarding... Um, not quite a century, but what else is there to be learned about the kidney's role, or is there anything else to be learned about the kidney's role in blood pressure management?
2: Oh, sure. There's lots to be learned, but um, the uh, the results of these two men and their discovery have led to the control of high blood pressure in millions and millions of people, uh, and so um, uh, their effects today are, are, are enormous, uh, and, and I, I've feel that the uh, the young physicians today should not forget uh, the people who first discovered this, these substances.
0: Well, it's a little bit inspiring if you're a scientist to look back at how this was done.
2: Well, I think you uh, we always talk about standing on one another's shoulders, and this is a very good example of that.
0: Oh. Well, thanks for looking into this, and thanks for sharing it with our listeners. My guest has been cardiologist and historian Dr. Harold Smolian. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink link on air coming up next which is a better way to eat low carb or low fat you're listening to upstate's health link on air Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on air. Some new research suggests that the key to weight loss is the quality of a diet, not necessarily the quantity. The counting calories may not matter. This is based on one randomized clinical trial published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, where researchers followed more than 600 adults for 12 months. Here to help us understand what this study found is Maureen Franklin, a registered dietitian nutritionist at Upstate. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. Let me start by sharing with listeners what the New York Times wrote about this study. Um, It found that people who cut back on added sugar, refined grains, and highly processed foods while concentrating on eating plenty of vegetables and whole foods without worrying about counting calories or limiting portion sizes lost significant amounts of weight over the course of a year. The strategy worked for people whether they followed diets that were mostly low in fat or mostly low in carbohydrates and their success did not appear to be influenced by their genetics or their insulin response to carbohydrates. So that sounds really intriguing. What did, what did you think of this?
3: Oh, I thought um, this is a fascinating study. It has a lot of education involved in it. That I know we're going to talk about a little bit. Um, one comment I do have is when the article said significant, I think it's important to realize what are they classifying as significant? So the average weight loss um, between the two groups was anywhere from f- approximately 13 pounds to 11 pounds. And remember, this was a 12-month study. To me, that's significant. To some people, they think, oh, that's all I've lost. But if it's maintained and sustained, you can do that again. So I think that's what the significant part of it is. I don't want people thinking like, oh, wow, these people lost you know, 50 pounds with this. Most people are going to go, really? You only lost 12 pounds? But it was because of the lifestyle changes, I think.
0: Ah, interesting. Well, let's talk about how this study was conducted, because it had a lot of people in it, more than 600.
3: Yep, 600 people, um, men and women, anywhere between 18 to 15, BMI between 28 and 40, um, and they were assigned to different groups in terms of one was called the healthy low-fat diet plan, and the other one was a healthy low-carb plan, Um, and... They were looking at if we could see any difference between these two types of plans and the effect in terms of um, insulin secretion, genotype, and weight loss. So quite a lot of things that they were looked at in terms of this study. Um, And there's some of the things in terms of the, the emphasis on the article seems to be about not counting calories. But I think one of the important things of this study is they weren't counting calories, but they were looking at... Not only quality and good, high-quality foods, but they were looking at quantity, and quantity in terms of what each individual could sustain. So I think that's important. So it might have not been, oh, you're on a 1,200-calorie, 1,600-calorie, whatever, but they were looking and they were giving guidelines in terms of how many grams of fat and how many grams of carbohydrate. So okay. I think that's important for people to realize. It wasn't just, oh, I never have to count calories again. I still think it's an important thing that they did look at it from a I would say a portion control standpoint.
0: Okay. And what did they end up what were the findings, the overall findings?
3: The findings were that they didn't really notice any significant difference between these, that um, they did they thought we're trying to see if they could see that, but they really didn't see any difference. The calorie range, in terms of um, what people decreased um, from the study, is anywhere from five to six hundred calories. Um, as they say, the weight range was thirteen to eleven, so not not huge differences between the two groups. So it was interesting that they didn't find anything to say. Oh, if we put you on a low fat diet, you're going to lose more weight than the person on the low carb diet, or vice versa.
0: Does this mean that counting calories doesn't is not effective? Or? Shouldn't be used? I mean, a lot of people do follow. A
3: lot of people do follow calories. And I think, again, uh, one of the main things of this study, which I found the best part of the study, was the individualization of it. So I think if counting calories works for you and you are keeping a good weight and good blood pressure and all the good things that we talk about in terms of health, if that works for you, great. If it works for you to be more general, and we've talked about different diets like the DASH diet, the Mediterranean diet, if it works for you to say, I'm just going to increase my vegetables two to three servings in a day, then that could work for you. So I think, to me, that is the key of this study from a dietary nutritionist standpoint, that it looked at each individual and said, we're not going to tell you go on a 1,200 calorie. We're going to tell you, these are the guidelines. You figure out what's going to work for you. And that, to me, is the beauty of this. And one of the big aspects of this study was um, behavior modification, right? Totally. And, And they met 22 times, which in a in my, my world, is like, oh, I would love to meet with my patients once a month or those kinds of things. They met 22 sessions, an hour-long session, and the majority, a lot of them, was on meal planning, um, shopping, mindful eating, food and mood. So a good percentage of these classes were based on how do you perceive food, how do you use food, and what are you doing, and are you being actually mindful, which I think is When we talk about not counting calories, mindful eating, to me, is the way that I think it's important for people to look at. What am I doing? And I need to think about what I'm doing. Maybe not count calories because, again, I think that's the thing. It doesn't always last. But if I'm trying to say, I need to add more vegetables, then be specific. How many vegetables do I need to add every day? So I think that's a real key in terms of this.
0: And they had a professional to help them through all of this.
3: All the educators were all registered dietitians, which I was so excited about. (laughs) Neat.
0: Well, um, this study asked people to cut back on added sugar, refined grains, and highly processed foods.
3: Yes. How hard is that to do? Again, it can be very difficult depending on what your typical intake is. So if you're a soda drinker or you're a, a person that relies heavily on processed foods and you don't you know, think about quinoa and farro and bulgur and those kinds of things, um, it could be a big change for you. So again, I think that's a individualization. And, what could I do? How can I start introducing? Maybe I should try farro. Maybe I should try a quinoa salad, those kinds of things in, in terms of it. Um, so I think it can be hard, and I think um, one of the take-home messages with this should be to people is don't give up. This was a 12-month study. People had success with weight loss, um, but it was looking at what they were doing on a day-to-day basis, and they were the ones in control. And I think that's a big key of this. We can give people tools. There's so much out there. But you have to be able to take those tools and individualize it to what's happening to you and your family and what you want to do. So it can be hard. You can make it hard or you can make it simple. You can make it and say, oh, I've got that. I did that. Wow, I've got a success on, you know, on my plate. Um, and, and say, all right, what's my next step?
0: Well, and again, they had a professional helping them learn what quinoa was and yes. how to how yes. to choose something that doesn't have as much sugar as something. Right. So, um, the foods that people were allowed to eat, pretty much as many as they wanted, were vegetables and whole foods. What do we mean by whole foods?
3: Um, we're talking in terms of fruits, vegetables, something that's not been taken. So say take steel-cut oats. All right. We have steel-cut oats. No, no real processing. Still cut oats takes a long time to cook, you know, again, good high fiber. Then we go to regular. Then we could go to quick cooking oats. Then we could go to instant oats. So as we get down there, we get away from the, the highest fiber content. We get away from the whole grain, and we make it quicker and easier because we've broken those things down that instant oatmeal very low fiber content, boom, quick and easy. Still cut, oh, I don't have time to do that. Well, you do on the weekend, but it's those kinds of things. So we're getting more into those whole foods, fruits, vegetables, those kinds of things. Um, I'm gonna do uh, brown rice, I'm gonna do quinoa, I'm gonna make a salad out of farro, those kinds of things. Those are the good whole grains.
0: All right, interesting. Uh, this is Upstate's HealthLink air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Maureen Franklin, a registered dietitian nutritionist at Upstate about healthy eating. Um, this particular study, it also measured uh, people's insulin secretion. Mm
3: -hmm. What what is that? Well, what they did is they did a, um, it's called a glucose tolerance test, an oral glucose tolerance test. So the people were given roughly 75 grams of um, glucose, and then they were tested 30 months after, uh, excuse me, 30 minutes after to see in terms of how their body and what the insulin secretion was for them individually. So it's like basically what happens when you have this amount of carbohydrate glucose into your system, what's happening within your system in terms of the insulin to take that and to utilize it.
0: Okay. And then, um, these were not people with diabetes. These,
3: this study, the people did not have diabetes. So that's, that's an done. important thing too, because again, it could be different depending. And you know, there's a lot of different variances with, um, patients with diabetes.
0: And this study also looked at whether there's any truth to the idea that a personalized nutrition advice um, based on genotype, mm-hmm. um, whether that can help people, you know, lose weight. And,
3: and they didn't see any difference with that either, too, because, again, sometimes you see different things in terms of, you know, your blood type and the different types of diets that are out there. So this was actually something that said, no, that's not it. It was really I think the key of this, it was the individualization and the behavior modification in terms of it. They used a great strategy, which I think is wonderful. They called it the limbo strategy, go as low as you can go. So when they were counseling these patients, they basically said to them, we're going to give you guidelines. We'd like you to give no more than, they started out with no more than 20 grams of fat or slash carbohydrates. But they said, if you can't achieve that, you go as low as you can go. And then the key was, you go where you can meet it, and then you try and sustain that. And that, I think, is the key. It wasn't saying, go do this. This is what we're telling you to do. And then people saying, well, I can't do it, so I'm not going to do it anyways. It was putting the control back, I think, on the individual, which I think is the key.
0: Um, And they had some that were following low-fat and some that were following low-carb. Low-carb. Did it surprise you that there was not an appreciable difference in the two groups as to who...
3: Not really, because when I looked at this study, the real main emphasis for both the groups when when I was reading in terms of what they did in terms of the education is they were saying to them first, we really want you to concentrate on vegetables, fruits, and whole grains. So when I look at that, they're already low in fat. They're already probably lower in carbs, okay, or they're a good fiber, so there's a good combination of that carb fiber. So when I looked at that, no, it was kind of interesting because I thought they... They started out with the same premise. Let's go for whole grain, good quality fruits, vegetables, and whole grains.
0: Well, one criticism of um, diets for losing weight is that people may do well when they're following them, but then when they're done with their diet, they go back to their, you know, their, their bad habits. That's right. Um, mm-hmm. So does this address that?
3: Well, I don't think the article addressed it. I think this addressed it when I, when I was looking over everything because I think what it was saying is there's hope. Okay, these people were followed for 12 months, 22 hour-long sessions, intense, I think, in terms of behavioral modification, nutrition education, and they saw weight loss. Did they see what we're always thinking we're supposed to get? No, but I think they saw weight loss. So to me it's saying don't give up. I think there's hope in terms of that because I think – What happens, what you just said, people go on, quote, a diet. What is that? Is that something they're going to sustain? Probably not. So that's what's a part of this study is what can you change and then what can you sustain after this 12-month study for lifelong. So I think that is a really big take-home message. Don't go on something that you in your back of your mind are saying, I'm just going to follow this for a couple weeks. Look at what you can actually do. That says, "Okay, I can do this, and I'm going to try and do this for the next six months." Break it down. Do it for three months, six months, and then see how am I doing in terms of that. So I think that's a real key in terms of that. I thought it was. I thought it was a fascinating.
0: Well, one of the takeaway messages um, is that people who want to lose weight maybe don't. Need to focus so much on calories but on eating a foundational mm-hmm. diet yes. the word foundational more vegetables more whole foods less added sugar less refined grains as a dietitian nutritionist um, you can share those instructions with people but how do you help them put it into practice? into practice are there some guidelines for
3: um i always start with you need to look at what you're doing on your own personal basis are you drinking sodas? Are you eating processed foods? What are you doing? Are you not, are you not eating vegetables? So you need to look at what you're doing and then you need to look at what can you change? Again, same thing What this study is saying, what can you, how's your limbo? How low is your limbo? Um, and what can you do that makes it livable for me? What can you do if you can say I can easily buy bag salad and then I'll add some purple cabbage to it and some shredded things. And I'm going to try and have a salad every day. Sometimes it's so little simple things that we tend not to think that they're positive. And I think that's a big key. People are like, no, I got to do something really big and I got to do this drastic change and I'm going to do it for two or three weeks and then I'm going to get sick of it and I'm going to go back to my lifestyle changes. So it's looking at what am I doing? What are those lifestyle changes? What one or two small changes can you make that you go, oh, this wasn't so bad. This was easy. Oh, I can do this. I'd rather have clients say, oh, that's all you want me to do for now? I'm like, yeah, I want you to say you're drinking f- two bottles of soda. And you say, yeah, I do it every day. Well, look at the size of your soda. Can you go down to one bottle instead of saying, I'm never having soda. And then in the back of your mind, you're saying, I'm not gonna, I can't do that. But if you can gradually get used to it and then say, oh, let's get some seltzer water here. Let's get some more water. Little gradual changes.
0: And those little gradual changes might turn into, it's a habit now, and you don't even think about it. That's
3: right. You always have a salad, or you don't have... It becomes part of your routine, and that's what you've got to look at. What's your routine? And you want to slowly change your routine, but you want to do it in a way that it just gradually becomes part of your routine, and it's not so drastic that it isn't sustainable.
0: Well, very encouraging news. Thank you so much for going Thank over you. this with us. Uh, my guest has been registered dietitian nutritionist Maureen Franklin. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, Health Link on Air. And now. Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
4: All of us know the irritation of waiting in the doctor's office. The appointment is for 10 o'clock, say, and we wonder how close to 11 it will be before we are seen. Kristen Plotz, a Massachusetts writer and former attorney, gives us a different perspective in her essay, Single Vision, Double Take. Here is an excerpt. Quiet but palpable annoyance slowly mounted, legs crossed and uncrossed with heavy sighs. Down parkas shifted on laps to make room for dated magazines. Someone opened a granola bar, the crinkle of the wrapper cutting through the silence like a butcher's knife on bone. Restraint from complaining was wearing thin. I should have been irritated too, but I knew enough to bring a book this time. I was scheduled for 3 o'clock sharp. It was a few minutes past 4 when I finally sat in his chair. My plan to avoid the rush of commuter traffic home was increasingly unlikely, but at least I got the chance to read. I found it hard to be angry with the doctor who carefully cut open my eye four months ago to correct brutal double vision. It was even harder to hold on to anger when he expressed genuine interest in the book I carried or when he warm-heartedly revealed that he has a daughter only a year older than mine, sharing a few tidbits about what yet's, what is yet to come. The post-op exam took all of five minutes with various lights and lenses. I couldn't ask for a better outcome, he said. Eyes now aligned and vision fully restored. I was having my last visit. And then he told me more about his daughter while reaching under his desk into his tattered briefcase. He pulled out a folded slip of paper and showed it to me. He had photocopied a comic strip for her, something to boost her spirits as she walked through the quagmire of third-grade relationships. In that brief instant, he shifted from pragmatic doctor to doting father. In turn, I suggested a book he might want to read to better understand the dynamics of young girls and their friendships. As I left his exam room a few minutes later, he double-checked the title I recommended. Then we parted ways, likely forever. Walking toward the elevator to go home, I felt lighter than I did just an hour before. I was softened more by what he shared with me than by what he solved for me. I was in that exam room for longer than necessary because he chose to connect with a patient despite a waiting room full of 10 more. It didn't matter that I will probably never return. There was no professional need on his part to build more trust and rapport, yet he took the time to engage. I suspect, Everyone else in that waiting room was also treated with similar humanity when it was finally their turn. Perhaps that's why he gets behind in the first instance. As the train pulled into the station, I was deeply grateful once again to have the unfettered ability to notice the elegance of the everyday, to witness the endless marvels all around me, all because of a doctor who graciously takes the time to run late.
0: In Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a psychiatrist talks about compulsive cell phone use. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org, or do a podcast search for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanking you for listening.